0: science,
1: innovation and knowledge,
0: technology advancement, discovery, we
1: science.
0: Hello everyone, we are back with a new episode today. This is Mehdi. This is Shan, and we are the co-hosts of your favorite scientific podcast
1: where we dive deeply into new scientific innovations.
0: Okay, Shen, uh, tell us a little bit about today's innovation and walk us through the problem.
1: Um, So today we're talking about lung cancer. Uh, Lung cancer is the second most common cancer in both men and women, major, I think, sites of metastasis of other types of cancer is often the lung. So not only do you have a lot of primary lung cancers, but you also have a lot of secondary tumors that are um, found in the lungs from other regions of the body.
0: Yes, so today we are talking to Dr. Samir Mitragotri, he's a professor of bioengineering at Harvard University. He's an elected member of several world-renowned societies, including National Academics of Engineering and Medicine, as well as the American Association for the Advancement of Science, just to name a few.
1: So aside from these very long list of impressive accolades, um, what did he do for this particular lung cancer problem?
0: Yeah, so he looked into this problem from completely different, or, or, or we say from out of the box, and the idea is a very brilliant idea to use our body's own red blood cells to carry the drug of choice for a specific cancer tissue. They could successfully deliver the drug of choice to the lung cancer and this is a very outstanding discovery in how we can use our own cells to selectively target a specific tissue in the body and the limit, uh, the limit the off targets of the, the drug delivery in the cancer field. Welcome to our podcast, Science Rehashed, and we are very delighted to have you today in our show.
2: Well, thank you for the invitation to be on this podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, My name is Samir Mitra Gautri. I'm a professor of bioengineering at Harvard in the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Uh, By training, I'm a chemical engineer. I started my undergraduate in chemical engineering in India uh, in a school called Institute of Chemical Technology. Uh, The school just does chemical engineering, so I went there without knowing what chemical engineering is, but when I went there, that was pretty much the only option there was. Um, So I graduated from there thinking that I'm going to be practicing chemical engineering, Uh, but then I came to PhD, to MIT, and that's where I got first introduced to the field of medicine. And I was just fascinated by the uh, problems that engineers can solve in the field of medicine. And ever since then, I never looked back. I have enjoyed working at the interface of medicine and engineering. Uh, after finishing uh, my school at MIT, I went to University of California, Santa Barbara, and I was a faculty there in the School of Chemical Engineering, but practicing bioengineering for 17 years, and then moved to Harvard about three years ago, uh, where I'm currently in the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences and also at the Wies Institute.
1: So I think we would like to start by um, talking a little bit about the motivations behind the paper. What was the question you were trying to uh, resolve with the engineering technique and how did you come up with the nanoparticle delivery aspect that you highlighted in this paper?
2: So the big problem that we're trying to solve is how do you control where do nanoparticles go in the body? So nanoparticles, as you know, have been a big part of the therapeutic landscape. The idea is quite simple, that you take the drug of your choice and you put that inside the nanoparticle and then you inject it intravenously and it goes to the target tissue. The only problem is that nanoparticles don't do that. They go wherever they want to go. So generally, they like to go to the liver and the spleen. So those are the clearing organs of the body. And the data show, if you look at the literature, data will show that only a tiny fraction of the injected nanoparticles actually go to the target site.
0: Why is that? Uh,
2: Because the function of the liver and the spleen is to clear foreign material in the blood. And nanoparticles are foreign to the blood. So uh, just the same uh, macrophages, the immune cells in the liver, that are responsible for clearing the bacteria and viruses from the blood, they see these nanoparticles and they remove them. And the liver is really good at it. It gets a lot of blood supply. The immune cells are very active. So from the moment you inject the nanoparticles, the liver puts on a very strong fight and leaving very little particles to be left that can target the tumor or any other target site that you have in mind.
0: When we're talking about the nano scale, what the scale that you mean and what is the really nanoparticle means. And when you talk about the macrophage, we mean white blood cells, right?
2: As you correctly said, the nanoparticles are tiny particles uh, which have a diameter, uh, you know, smaller than the human hair. And the good thing about them is that they can hold the drug and the drug can be held inside until the particle reaches the target, at which point it can come out. The immune cell, as you correctly pointed out, uh, the macrophage uh, is responsible for removing the particles from the the blood. They are present in the liver and they actively monitor the particles that flow by and whenever they see a foreign particle, they latch onto it and remove it from the circulation.
0: We, we we go back right now to the motivations behind the paper and the, the, the main driving force to really encapsulate the chemotherapy drugs into a nanoparticle, very tiny particles, and then cargo them with the RBCs and send them over to the lung. How this all shaped out in this specific idea?
2: Right, so, uh we were trying to think about ways to overcome this problem, where the nanoparticles are going to the liver and not to the target site. So we wondered what can be done to overcome this problem. Uh, and people have tried that. So people have been asking this question for quite some time. One strategy is to put uh, a coating on the nanoparticle
0: that make makes, them invisible
2: to make them invisible to the macrophages. And that works to an extent, but the macrophages are very smart. They figure out how to overcome that problem. Um, So we said, uh, let's look at the inspiration from nature. We are trying to put our nanoparticle in the blood for a long time. What else is in the blood that stays there for a long time? That's the red blood cell. Each red blood cell stays in circulation for four months it goes through the liver every second, every minute. It is not captured by the macrophages. So that was interesting to us. We said, here is a platform, body's own platform, that is doing exactly what we want our nanoparticle to do. Can we get some help from them? Can we hitch a ride on the red blood cell? And that's how this idea came about.
1: So then these nanoparticles, when you finally kind of um, optimize the protocol for attaching, what what did you
2: guys find? In a a nutshell, this is what happened. Imagine a nanoparticle on the red blood cell. The nanoparticle is not covalently attached to red blood cell, it's just sitting there Mm -hmm. because of the electrostatic and hydrophobic interactions. So this nanoparticle red blood cell complex, as it's flowing through the blood, the attachment is strong enough for the particle to, hook, to, to remain on the surface of the red blood cell. Now when they go to the lungs, the capillaries in the lungs are very small. They're actually smaller than the red blood cell itself. So the red blood cell gets stretched and this particle is now kind of pushed into the endothelium of the lung blood vessels and it can also attach to the endothelium. And as the blood pushes the blood, the red blood cells away, this particle is left behind on the endothelium. So it's a very effective way of transferring the nanoparticles from the red blood cell onto the endothelium of the lungs.
0: How you could observe this?
2: Initial experiments were simply based on looking at the biodistribution, where does it go? So time after time, we saw that these particles like to go to the lungs and then we uh, studied that further and uh, looking at the response of the nanoparticles to shear and uh, their detachment from the red blood cell when we expose them to shear we realized that the mechanism of transfer of nanoparticles from red blood cell to the lungs is because of their uh, because of the high shear in the blood capillaries as well as the uh, the, the small diameter of the lung capillaries. Okay,
1: so I'm thinking this is what I'm imagining. Um, kind of the red blood cell as a paper plate that kind of is flexible and you can bend it. And as you go through smaller, and smaller vessels, they get bent. And as they're bent, they expose the nanoparticles that's on one side of the red blood cell. And then as it goes through the blood vessel and it touches the uh, endothelium, it gets stripped off. Um, And the nanoparticle remains there, but then the red blood cell kind of continues its path.
2: Precisely, yes.
0: And this is kind of like one part of the beauty of the, the, the technology, because if you can imagine having the nanoparticles encapsulated with the RBC and having, imagining the RBCs, the red blood cells, having the capability of deforming and the flexibility, the mechanical flexibility of the, the RBCs, that you would not be able to release the drugs from the RBCs. So it's, 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 I think it's, it's very critical to have like this nanoparticles on the surface of the red blood cells. That's the only chance to get them like delivered in the lung.
2: Absolutely. So if the nanoparticle were inside the red blood cell it would not come out. It will just stay inside and keep circulating. But to have it transferred to the lungs, keeping it on the surface is very important.
0: So if we again go back to one of the conventional methods of nanoparticle, encapsulating a drug within a shell and sending it over to a specific tissue or target or organs. So in this case, probably would not work out because you have it encapsulated, and using the same hypothesis of the shearing would not work because it's encapsulated, it's gonna just pass by.
2: Exactly.
1: So then from this observation, you're able to understand how the nanoparticles was able to be taken off the red blood cells, remain in the lungs. Now, the application, which is lung metastases. So how did that come across?
2: So we wondered uh, what application uh, this would be most effective for. And that's where lung metastasis really came to our mind. And that is interesting because, uh, you know, if you look at how uh, cancer is treated, especially metastatic cancer is treated, there aren't too many therapies which are specifically aimed at treating metastasis people just continue to treat metastasis using the same treatment that is designed for the primary uh, primary tumor but if you look at you know many uh, predominant types of cancer breast cancer colorectal cancer they metastasize to the lungs and even others too and usually it's the metastasis that causes significant mortality So we wondered whether we can take advantage of the fact that we can deliver significant quantities of nanoparticles in the lungs and many types of cancers metastasis in the lungs. Can we combine the two to come up with a very strong and unique application? And that was the genesis uh,
0: for this this, uh, paper. Can you use the same technology to target other organs?
2: You are asking a very interesting question. Let me sort of go back a bit as to why are we getting lung accumulation in the first place. So imagine these red blood cells and nanoparticles injected in the blood and the injections are intravenous, so they circulate and eventually they get to the lungs. So lungs is the first organ where they see a massive bed of capillaries and that's why they come off mainly in the lungs. Now, if you want to go to a different organ, you have to change the injection site. So last year, we published a paper, along with our collaborators, Vladimir Muzikanto from Penn. And in that paper, what was shown is that if you inject the same nanoparticle red blood cell complex in the artery, it will go to the first organ it hits. So if you inject in the carotid artery, you can get them into the brain. By the same idea, you can get them in the kidney or any other organ. So in principle, it is possible to target many different organs using the same concept. Just change the injection cycle.
0: Right now, we are relatively speaking to the nanoparticles, the encapsulated one versus the one that delivered with the ROVCs. What about like administering the same chemotherapy drugs?
2: If you just inject the free drug, then it is very difficult to control where it goes. So uh, doxorubicin, for example, uh, the, the, that drug is, is a small molecule and it, is, it diffuses freely uh, into the tissues and one of the side effects of that free drug is that goes to the heart. So there is significant cardiac toxicity, which is a major problem uh, in terms of using that drug at the doses that you may need to use to see effective killing of the tumor. Uh, So, compared to free drugs, you get much better control in terms of where the drug goes when you encapsulate that uh, in the nanoparticle. Uh, But with nanoparticle, the problem becomes that it goes to the liver. So that's the problem that RBC uh, hitchhiking overcomes.
0: What is the stage of the the, the current technology right now? Where are you going with this technology?
2: So currently we have uh, excellent proof of concept uh, that the technology principle works. We have optimized the process. We understand uh, the uh, particle parameters which are required to make it work. Uh, We have encapsulated a number of uh, chemotherapy drugs. So we have uh, demonstrated the breadth of the technology. And the next step is really to uh, Uh, perform the studies to move it closer to the clinic.
0: And the primary target going to be for lung?
2: The primary target is going to be for the lungs.
0: But there is unlimited possibilities that you can tune the technology for different targets.
2: Absolutely. Mm
1: -hmm. Although the, the research that's been done shown is in the mouse, right? So when we go into the human, do you foresee any challenges in that particular optimization?
2: So there are always challenges when you change the, the scale of the uh, uh, model that you're working with. So uh, the paper that I mentioned uh, where we uh, where we targeted the nanoparticle to different tissues. So in that particular paper, we have looked at uh, the way this procedure works in different animal models, mouse, rat, pigs, and excise human lungs. And the interesting thing is that this approach that we are proposing works through a principle of almost like physics or mechanics, right? That's what nanoparticles come off because they are uh, uh, sheared off into the lungs. So um, we can predict uh, based on the data we have uh, a lot of the parameters that when we change the animal model. Uh, having said that, uh, Whenever any new technology goes from a mouse model and makes progress uh, towards the human model, we do anticipate uh, new learnings that will come along. Uh, But we are excited to take on that journey and see how quickly we can move it to the clinic. Mm
0: -hmm. You have been in the field of drug delivery for a while couple of decades probably. (laughs) And you are one of the pioneers in a lot of uh, technologies that have been established in the drug delivery field. And I see your office wall is full of awards from drug delivery societies and different schools. So I would like to go big pictures and ask you what is your vision of drug delivery and specifically what is your vision of cancer drug delivery, and where you see the field is going with all these exciting technologies that emerging in the field?
2: So I see a huge potential for the field of drug delivery to make an impact on uh, how patients are treated. Um, so traditionally, drug delivery has been about small molecules because that's what that's what made the drug landscape, but that landscape is changing very quickly from small molecules to large molecules and now to cells. So as the field changes in drug candidates, the drug delivery technologies have to adapt quickly and figure out how to make them work better.
1: I think besides science, uh, we're wondering what motivates you, what drives your passion when you're at home or um, not in the office?
2: I think the the, the the passion is really to, or what drives the passion is to make an impact. Any human condition that needs treatment, if we can play a part in treating them, in solving this problem, that gives me tremendous satisfaction. And that's really my motivation.
0: And what are your hobbies uh, outside of work? How you could adopt yourself coming from the West Coast to the East Coast? <laughs>
2: Uh, coming from the west coast to the east coast was an interesting experience. It's, uh, it's different in many ways, uh, certainly in terms of weather. Coming from Santa Barbara, which has wonderful weather, to Boston, uh, which has not so wonderful weather. <laughs> <laughs> I have a strong interest in painting. So I like to paint. Haven't had much time to do that recently. Uh, there are no paintings of mine in, in my office uh, at the time they're at home. But, you know, that's been um, a you know, sort of hobby of mine for a long time, ever since I was a kid. And, you know, whenever I find time, I find a little outlet for that. I like to be outdoors. I like to run whenever I can. Uh, I was never an athlete growing up. And one day I s- thought I would like to run, and uh, I was wondering how to get into that habit. So I just uh, enrolled myself to run a marathon, a full marathon. Wow. <laughs> <A> one
1: hundred. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: people <Very> thought You <laughs> people told me that's a very crazy way of <laughs> motivating <laughs> yourself to run, uh, but that actually helps. So very
0: uh, nerdy way. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh, it was an la uh, marathon in la and so I, I trained and I finished it and ever since then you know I've, I've been a big fan of running here and there so I do that but yeah you know it's really you uh, know grateful to all the students who are you know equally motivated to, to join in this journey because it's a it takes a strong effort as you know very well to uh, to solve this problem the problems we are taking on are really tough. They have a lot of risk when you post them and it requires a lot of dedication and collaboration to, to uh, realize them. And uh, you know, it's really the students' dedication and motivation that plays a huge role. So I'm really thankful to them for all they do in uh, making this journey successful. Mm-hmm.
0: Samir, it was a delightful discussion and we really appreciate you to joining us in this ep- episode.
2: The pleasure is mine. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Science Rehash. We would also like to thank Dr. Rudy Tenzi for providing us with the music for our intro. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can visit our website at sciencerehash.com.
1: So, at the end of each episode, we'd really like to highlight some of our team members who contributed their time to this podcast and making it possible. Today, we'd like to thank our writers, Madura Lolikar, Shuang Zheng, and Bria Taylor. Our show is available through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please subscribe and refer our podcast to your friends. We would love to hear your comments and feedback for our show, so don't hesitate to reach out to us via our website.